So uh, imagine tonight, if you would, that you are in the audience for Let's Make a Deal, okay? And so maybe if it helps you, you can picture yourself wearing like a banana costume or something, okay? And depending on your age, you can think of me as Monty Hall or Wayne Brady. Um, but anyway, so it's time for the big deal. So we have three doors, and way over there is door number one, and here in the center is door number two, and over here to my other side is door number three. And you know that somewhere, somewhere, there is something amazing behind those doors. Maybe it's a vacation in Hawaii, maybe it's a brand new car, as they say. And so you pick, let's say you pick door number one. And I say, Are you, do you want to stay with door number one as your pick? Let me show you door number three. And I open up door number three, and behind it is a goat. It's a plain old goat nibbling on grass. Okay. So now uh, this brings up a fascinating, here's your moment. Should you change from door number one to door number two? Would that improve your odds of winning the big deal? Okay, well, we'll talk more about this in a moment. <laughs> At the end, we'll talk about it, which is better. But here's why I bring up Let's Make a Deal. Imagine that this is not just a big deal, but the big deal, the really, really big deal, because behind one of these doors is God, the real God, okay? And behind the other two doors is the deity equivalent of a goat, okay? Not at all God, not what you're looking for, not what you're hoping to get. Well, I think in some ways, this is the situation we all find ourselves in as, as people, right? Like right now, 79% of us Americans say uh, that they're spiritual. They say we're, we're spiritual, and I would put myself in that 79%. And I, I think what they're saying is that almost everyone I know feels something like this. There's got to be more than just what I can see. There's got to be more to life than that. And they intuit. I don't know, there must be a God or gods or a force or something. There's got to be something behind the doors. But from the different doors, how, how do I choose the right one? All right, well, uh, of course, in our day, we have lots of things to help. You can go to BeliefNet, and they have Belief-O-Matic registered trademark. I can't make this up. Belief-O-Matic registered trademark. Um, only an American could come up with the phrase belief-o-matic. But anyway, it has, it's an interesting little quiz, and it, one of its questions asks, what is the number and nature of the deity or deities? What is the number and nature of those? And it gives a bunch of different options, including ones like this. So you might imagine these as options behind the doors. Maybe there is no God or supreme forces. The door opens up, and it's blank. There ain't nothing, okay? Or maybe in this, the next door might be in personal life force in us. And so it's not personal, but there is some kind of life force. All right, then another door might be multiple gods or goddesses. And another one might be only one god, supreme and personal, the creator. Okay, well, how do you find out which one's real? How do you know which gods or gods actually exist? And, and you, so you don't end up with a nibbling goat. Well, this is something that all people 
have tried to answer. And, uh, and if you're interested in this question, as I happen to be, then I invite you to listen in tonight on a meeting of great thinkers. One is a Christian, Paul, and the rest are not. And in this meeting where he's presenting to them, we learn three qualities that only the real God has. All right, so the meeting takes place in about the year 50, and Paul, who's uh, an early Christian missionary, he has been invited to speak to a group of the smartest people in the city of Athens, Greece. So um, remember, this is the city that gave us Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. There's some bright people in this zip code. Okay, so in Acts 17 and verse 22, our first reading tonight, says that Paul, who was invited to present, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice you're very religious in every way, because as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. Now, this is a little bit of understatement here on Paul's part. One Greek writer, Xenophon, used to joke, if you go to Athens, it's easier to find a god than a person. <laughs> so, but anywhere you're walking around in Athens, you look up and you can see the giant Acropolis dead at, with all of its statues and amazing buildings dedicated to the gods. And up there in the Parthenon is this statue of Athena, which is made of gold and ivory, and she's holding a spear. You can see a replica of this at the Parthenon in Tennessee. Um, and you can see the tip of that spear from 40 miles away. It'd be like driving out to DeKalb, looking back and seeing something here in Wheaton. And so Paul, picking up on their religious interest, says, and one of your alders that I saw had this inscription. It said, to an unknown God. So obviously, you guys have spiritual hunger. You have a desire to worship, but maybe you don't have all the pieces filled in for you about God. So this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm going to tell you about. And so he points out three facts that they need to know if they're going to find and worship the real God. So here we go. Fact number one, and this is where I need some support, as they say on the TV programs from the lovely Claire. So. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Claire. All right, we have here a nice globe. Spin it around to Japan, since we're all thinking about Tokyo. And... He says, verse 24, the real God is the God who made the world and everything in it. He made all of this. Now, so the first thing we need to know is that God is creator of everything. He made everyone, every single one of us. He made everything. Now, this is actually a shocker for Paul's audience because Paul's talking to people, none of whom believe that. Some of them are Epicurean philosophers, and so they say there aren't any gods involved in creation. The world came about from a random collision of atoms, which is still a very popular belief today. Okay. And then the other main group that he's talking to are Stoics, and they believe in pantheism, meaning that the, the universe that we see, the rocks and the seas, those weren't made by God in their view. They're a part of of God. Do you see the difference? Okay, that's pantheism, and you can find that today uh, in, say, New Age or Hinduism. 
Okay. And Paul says, this first fact about God, the fact that he's creator of everything, matters. Here's why it matters. Verse 24, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs. Because he has no needs. <laughs> now, if you went home that evening in Athens with one of those philosophers, and let's say they invited you to dinner, you would find in their home an altar dedicated to the goddess Hestia. Okay? And during dinner, the family would take some of the food off the dinner table, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, maybe a plateful, and set it down before the goddess. Okay? And Paul's saying, can we do a 180 on that? Um, because the real God doesn't need you to leave out some dinner. In fact, you need him or you wouldn't have any dinner. Because he doesn't need anything. But he himself gives life and breath to everything and he satisfies every need. That's the real God. Now, sometimes we lose our grip on this fundamental fact of God that he has created for everything. For example, Christians can do it. Um, sometimes during the excitement of, say, a church building campaign, Christians will get this a little bit wrong. As Oswald Chambers has said, one of the most subtle errors is that God wants our possessions. He does not. They are not of any use to him. He does not want my property. He wants myself. And then Chambers quotes Jesus, who says, sell whatever you have and give the proceeds away, but as for you, you come and follow me. See, the poor need our check. The community of faith needs our check. But God, God's doing fine. So, so let's not get confused about that. He can live without me, but I can't live without him. He gives me life and breath and and this is where the non-Christian gets it wrong. This breath right here, okay, which allows, say, a non-believer to say, I'm not sure there's really a God, I'm doing fine. I really don't need a crutch or a construct like that in my life. They don't realize that when they said those very words, they were using a breath that they drew from God, the creator of everything. In him we live and move and exist, Paul says. As some of your own poets have said, you've already figured this out, we are his offspring. So God's creator of everything. Now let me ask you just a couple questions to take this a little deeper for you tonight. Possible points of application for you. Do I know that what I have comes from God? My opportunities, my education, my job, my challenges, my family, my food, it all comes from him. Do I, how do I feel about that? Do I feel grateful to God? Or do I feel uh, a little resentful about what I have? Do I realize that my very life and my next breath depend on him? That the fact that I'm sitting here breathing right now means he wants me alive for his purposes. All right, let's move on to fact number two that Paul gives that'll help us find the real God. And here I need some assistance from the ever capable and handsome John Mark. All right. All right, so thank you. Thank you, John. John brought up a chessboard and several pieces on here. Paul, Paul says, from one person, God created all the nations throughout the whole earth. 
He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. The real God is not only creator of everything, he is also ruler of nations. God moves the pieces on the chessboard of history. And some pieces he takes off the board. And some he moves forward. Now some people think that when God created the world, he then stepped back, took a vacation, and kind of let it run. Right? But the real God stays involved, Paul says, raising up nations, setting their boundaries, determining beforehand what happens. I wonder if we've really taken that in. Now this was Abraham Lincoln's conclusion when he looked at the bloody civil war as it dragged on, as it had killed 750,000 Americans. So way more than whatever COVID is at 610, I think. And if the same percentage of the population had died, it would be 7 million today. So it was devastating. And, and, and Lincoln kept wondering, where is God in all this? As he said in his second inaugural address, both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered, and that of neither has been answered fully. So here's a man who is anguished in his soul and trying to figure out what is God about in this war. And in that inaugural address in 1864, he suggests this. Maybe God, quote, gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense, meaning of slavery, came. And he goes on to suggest this. Okay, we in America forced people to work for 250 years without ever giving them a paycheck. So maybe this expensive war is getting, taking all that money back. Maybe all the blood that was caused by slave owners' whips is now being taken from the slave owners' families themselves. This is what Lincoln was, was positing. Now, this view of God, as hard as it is to get our minds around, makes a big difference. If I believe there is no God or supreme force, you open the door and there's nothing there, then there is no way that something as lucrative financially as slavery will ever be stopped. What's going to intervene? What's going to keep the powerful from just staying in power? There's no way a tyrant ever gets brought down. He just stays in power forever until the new tyrant comes. And I will become, in that view, either fatalistic, where I'm just resigned to whatever happens, or I'll think it all depends on me, and I will do whatever it takes for my side to win. And don't we see a lot of that out there? It takes a God who is ruler over the nations to get us to the point where we don't become fatalistic and despairing about the course of the nations and neither do we, it, it empowers us to take responsible action. Verse 27, God's purpose so was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him, kind of grope and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God gives an opportunity in the way he interacts in history to for people to look around and go, I think God must be at work somewhere in this. So here's a question for us to consider. When I get angry about the news or disaffected or bitter, do I let that drive me to God in prayer? 
when I'm despairing of the world's condition, can I see that over time God takes the side of the oppressed and will bring down the oppressor? When my own nation is doing well, do I reach out to God in gratitude? When my country is struggling, do I reach out to God in lament and repentance? Or have I given up on the idea of God as a ruler of the nations and I think it all depends on my political party or I just withdraw and despair? All right, God is creator of everything. He's ruler of the nations. And third and finally, the fact you need to know about God with some assistance from my niece, Catherine, thank you, is this gavel. Thank you very much, which also looks remarkably like a meat cleaver. <laughs> Let's call it a gavel. Court is in session. Verse 31, Paul says, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who it is by raising him from the dead. You and I and every person you know already has a court date set. The judge has already been assigned to our case. And that judge will look at our life in its entirety and ask, given what you knew and what you had, what did you do with that? What did you do with what you knew? What did you do with what you had? And other people cannot see us completely. So we can say, hey, you know, I didn't really mean that when actually what was going on inside was much worse than what we did or said. <laughs> we were really vengeful. But they don't know that, so we can say, hey, that wasn't the real me, I didn't really mean that. But God, who's judge of all things, has super MRI. He scans. He sees. He knows. We cannot hide or say from this God, the real God, hey, yeah, I had no idea. I didn't have a conscience that you gave me. It's not going to cut it. The nice thing about an impersonal life force never calls you to account. But the real God, supreme, personal, creator of all things, ruler of the nations, and judge of my actions does. So let me ask you this question. Do I know right now of anything that is standing between me and God? Is there anything nibbling at my conscience? something that I kind of papered over and went on. And am I allowing it to continue or am I addressing it? Am I going to work with God's help? For God, the real God, commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him, Paul says. This is the real God that we're looking for, the creator of everything, the ruler of the nations, and the judge of all. Amen. All right, now back to the math puzzle. This has got a name. It's called the Monty Hall problem. If you choose door number one, you haven't seen it yet, and door number three is revealed to you as not the grand prize, should you switch your pick and choose door number two instead, would that increase your odds? Isabel, please. Yep. And so the other doors have the two-thirds chance. So you open the door, and that two-thirds chance causes 
that was even better explained than Wikipedia. Thank you, Isabel. And all of you can Google Monty Hall problem later tonight. <laughs>